Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal election campaign continues as the leaders make their pitches on issues like tackling climate change, the housing crisis, and costly wireless services. Will tonight's French debate make any difference? Going back to school is an exciting time for many children, but for some, it also stirs up stress and anxiety. How can parents help their children deal with those fears? And it's Hamilton students' turn to go back to school today. Pat Daly, the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth Catholic District School Board, will join us to talk about their return to school plan. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is, a, I guess, almost like a, a debate double header. Uh, coming up this week uh, as far as the federal election is concerned. Uh, we have uh, the French language debate, the second French language debate, which will be happening tonight, and then tomorrow night, the English language debate, which uh, we'll carry for you here on Global Radio, by the way. Uh, and uh, it's important for a whole lot of reasons, because uh, heading into the federal election campaign with just a, uh, a couple of weeks left right now, uh, the leaders are making pitches on issues like well, climate change, housing crisis, uh, wireless services, things of this nature. But one of the stories that just doesn't seem to want to go away are the angry protesters that continue to cause bumps on the campaign trail. Global's Miranda Anthistle reports. The holiday Monday didn't deter angry protesters from showing up at a Liberal campaign stop in London, Ontario and throwing gravel at leader Justin Trudeau. Every party is condemning this behaviour that has become a constant disruption during campaigning. It's completely unacceptable to see harassment of political figures, of media. We live in a great democracy and let's act like we do. We've got to assess the security before we do an event. Sadly, because of people like this who are causing a real threat to the media that come with us on tour to our volunteers to our staff to our team this cannot happen trudeau isn't backing down he says he'll continue to stand up and defend everyone who has chosen to get vaccinated i am inspired by those people who continue to do the right thing in the face of anti-vaxxer mobs who are not respecting the basic science and the basic decency that canadians have rightly come to expect from each other so where does this leave us? Uh, it's a very, very difficult time and a very pivotal time, especially when you look at some of the polling that's gone on. Uh, to try to get some sense out of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Oksana Kiszczek, who is a consultant with Abacus Data. Uh, Oksana, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us again today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, with the turmoil that's going on, uh, with not just with the uh, the anti-vaxxers that seem to be following the Trudeau campaign around, uh, but some of the other things that are, we're looking for, I guess, a, a, a moment here where somebody's going to grab the reins here and actually take charge. Uh, but I know you, uh, uh, with Abacus Data, you guys have been doing an awful lot of uh, polling on this, as many other co- polling companies have. And, and I guess the real takeaway here is uh, this is a very tight race, and at this point, probably still anybody's race. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely the takeaway we're seeing uh, with coming out of the long weekend with our polling numbers, that, that things are still neck and neck in terms of conservative and, and liberal wins, uh, kind of dancing between um, either party based on how you look at it. If you look at sort of people who are likely to vote, people who say they'll definitely vote, and then just the electorate in general. Um, so I think kind of going into this week, uh, again, it continues to be a, a very tight race and leaders need to be on, on top of their game this week. What do you read between the lines? Are there trends here? Uh, you know, because I, was, I think about this time last week, the Conservatives had a two or three point lead in a lot of the the, the polling. Uh, then late last week, the Liberals seemed to jump ahead by a couple of points, and now it seems to be a dead heat once again. It, it, it's very hard to find a trend here, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think that's kind of like a culmination of what you and I have been talking about these past couple of weeks, and I think what the next couple of weeks uh, leading up to sort of the end of the campaign are saying is that. Um, 
there's there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of issues um, that we can talk about. Uh, there, both leaders or all leaders have tried to sort of push the conversation to their particular issues, but um, cost of living continues to sort of top the charts in terms of what Canadians are thinking about. But I'm not too convinced that there's been sort of one message that continually is sort of that breakthrough conversation that's been able to sort of stick through the past couple of weeks. And so I think that sort of explains the times we're in, but then also sort of the shifts that we're seeing in the polls and that there's no sort of the election isn't necessarily about one thing in particular, especially with cost of living being such kind of a broad conversation. Um, and so I think people are still kind of bouncing, maybe paying attention, not really sure where to jump or maybe even not paying attention quite yet. Um, and so that's why we're seeing such a close tie. Past elections have told us or taught us rather that uh, that one particular uh, subject, as you say, or one issue, uh, can really make or break a political party or a politician, for that matter, a candidate. Uh, and sometimes they can ride that to victory. Other times it can be uh, uh, one of the factors in their demise. Uh, there was mm-hmm. a lot of concern last week with Aaron O'Toole about his, his, his messaging on gun control. Has that hurt him? Um, I, I think that that's something that we'll be looking to track. Uh, it, in my opinion, I'm I'm not so sure it will hurt him in the way that the Liberals want. I think he's already sort of successfully pivoting back to his um, platform a little bit. But I think the bigger thing is it happened over the long weekend, and, and we're still not seeing a lot of people um, really interested in having an election right now, interested in paying attention to the election. Um, I think going into a long weekend with back to school this week, people just aren't necessarily clicked into to what they're going to vote on. And so I think kind of leading up um, until, until next week, the debate sort of capping off the end of this week, um, as leaders get to sort of be in front of Canadians and, and be around each other and sort of have their message rise to the top. I think that's something um, that I'm looking forward to a little bit more in terms of what's going to sort of shape, um, what's going to hurt or help the different party leaders and, and what Canadians are really going to be looking to vote on. You're uh, tracking from Abacus uh, about the first debate, the French language debate from a couple of days ago now, seemed to indicate that it really didn't make much difference to voters. It didn't really swing anybody one way or another. Is there is an anticipation that it's going to be more of the same over the next two nights, or is there an absolute chance here for somebody to break through? Um, I, I think there could be an opportunity for breakthrough. I mean, last week it was just sort of like the French language debate, so I think now there's an opportunity to speak to a wider platform of Canadians. Um, I think the debates will be really interesting and have the potential to shape conversation based on how they perform and then how they're reported on in the media. Um, I think that that sort of is an opportunity for the parties to kind of get their final narrative out. And, and like I said before, I think people aren't necessarily tuned into the election. They're, they were enjoying their summer. They were angry that there was an election, um, enjoying their long weekend, sending their kids back to school. And so in this last kind of week, sort of starting off with the debates, I think that's when people are really going to start sort of tuning in and trying to figure out what they're going to do. How they report it. Now, that's an interesting point, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's a, it, it, it actually relates to a conversation I was having with a, one of the political backroom people that, uh, that has mm-hmm. been involved in a number of elections over the years. And he mentioned to me, he says, how the media reports what goes on in the debates in particular, he said, is very important because he says, let's mm-hmm. face it, most Canadians don't really watch the entire debate. You know, they're busy doing other things. Uh, their favorite exactly. show might be on, you just don't know. But they may watch snippets of it, but more importantly, they hear the clips the next couple of days or how it's reported. 
distorted from the, the, the political columnists. So, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we want them all to be objective, you know, really. But the reality is, is there's going to be maybe some biases and there's going to be favorites and there's going to be, well, what some people hope is anyway is going to be a gotcha moment. We've seen some of those. And, and so how that's reported and in the manner in which it's reported and, and actually which phrases uh, get repeated the next day in the news cycle is going to be awfully important. Yeah, and I think sound bites have sort of always been important in that sense, especially when it comes to debates. But I think it's just a reminder of, of how important kind of that positioning in debates is, because as much as Canadians are the audience, um, it's also the media and people who are going to report on the debate. Um, we actually did a release, I think it was last week, about the different sources people are using online to get their information about the election. And for Canadians, about a third of their information is coming from things like traditional news sources. And so it's, it's really a, a place where more messaging and, and things like that are really shaped. And so I think as much as the debates are an opportunity for leaders to show uh, themselves to Canadians about who they are, it's also those other audiences that are then going to be sharing with Canadians. And so it's it's an opportunity to kind of perform and, and really show who you are to to a variety of audiences. Uh, and with the pivotal moments, I mean, we all remember Brian Mulroney when he wanted to, to take over uh, from John Turner that, you know, you had a choice there about patronage appointments, and they played that over and over again. And that was a pivotal mm-hmm. moment. We've seen some of them in past debates, too. Uh, but you mm-hmm. mentioned some of the key issues, and, and it seems as if the common theme, especially from the data that you guys at Abacus have been reporting on, Exxon, is, as you say, it's it's quality of life. It's it's how is, is what's going on right now with the pandemic, the, the, you know, the lockdowns as we've had them and, and other things. How is that impacting my household? And and, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's a pretty strong message right now. And I'm wondering if the three leaders have, have actually clung to that right now. And, I mean, the other issues that you guys have talked about, like climate change and everything else, they're up there. I know those are priorities. But it's mm-hmm. what are you going to do for me and my family right now seems to be the overriding question. Yeah, I think it, it, it's really definitely at the top of the list. I think it's always kind of tossing between the top three with so cost of living, health care, and carbon emissions, and, and climate change. Um, but I think this is kind of one of the first elections where cost of living is becoming more of, of an issue that's top of mind for Canadians. I mean, Canadians often put healthcare in, in the top three. Climate change has been in the top three for past couple elections as well. Um, cost of living has been slowly growing, but I think the pandemic was really a focal point and an opportunity for many Canadians to sort of evaluate how that issue impacts their life. There's everything from rising food prices, inflation, the housing market in different areas, especially if you're trying to buy in as a young buyer. Um, Child care costs is all kind of wrapped up in that issue. And I think um, it's, it's an election where people are really trying to vote for themselves. Um, and so I think that'll be a, it's a really good point. And I think that um, leaders will have to really show that in, in the debates, that they're focused on Canadians and Canadian issues that are actually impacting them and how they're going to sort of pull them forward through this sort of cost-of-living crisis. It's, it's a, almost as if the challenge here is going to be that each and every one of them are going to have to tie whatever issue that they're talking about right now as to how this is going to impact me and my family and, or anybody who's watching in their family, even if it's something like climate change. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. how's that going to impact the local economy? You know, they talk about innovation, and they've all talked about in their platforms about, you know, they're, they're going to pour money into innovation uh, here in the country. But what's that going to do to me? How's that going to impact my family? You know, can you know what about, as you say, the cost of housing and things like that? And daycare is going to be an issue that I'm not hearing a whole lot about, but in in urban centers it's played a big big role in past debates yeah yeah i think it's definitely something that it really depends on on sort of the demographic um and it really depends on the area that people live and i think um that's probably why the issue is is definitely being talked about but isn't necessarily something that's in that sort of top three list um on its own i think because it's 
it's um, it definitely affects uh, us as a society being able to have families access childcare. Um, I think, but um, I'm not really sure that it specifically will sort of top the list. But I do think for people that need childcare, it really is going to be something that they're watching for in terms of that cost of living sort of package that's being offered. This is, uh, well, we're going to be carrying it on radio, of course, on Global Radio, but of course it's going to be on all the major networks uh, tomorrow night, especially the English language debate, uh, which means that style and performance is going to be a factor, even if it's not on the agenda. Uh, it's something that impacts people, and, and we've seen that happen. I mean, uh, the, the demeanor of the candidates, uh, you know, do they go after another candidate, and if they do, in what way do they go after them? Uh, a lot of that's important. There's a lot of strategy involved in here. Oh, for sure. And now that was something that I was watching um, in the French debates, because I will admit my, my French language is not, <laughs> not quite good. I could follow everything, but I did watch sort of their body language and, and mannerisms, and, and that was something that was really interesting to see. Um, I think Trudeau seemed more comfortable in the language, but he also seemed sort of able to express his emotions, maybe positive and negative, because of that. And he, he seemed to be on the defensive a little bit more than... And, and I would have expected a little bit less smiley, that sort of thing. But I think especially like listening on the radio, tone of voice is going to be really important and something that I'm going to be watching for. If people sound defensive, if people sound confident, um, if people are able to calmly sort of answer questions or even pivot when asked questions, um, I think that's really important. It really helps um, sort of create a, a persona and personality, um, especially in those sound bites. That's pe something people are going to be looking for as well when they hear those played back. And so it's, it's just as important as the messaging that they're talking about. Well, the classic example of that, and I know I'm going way, way back in history, but I mean, it's, it's still, I think, very relevant, is uh, when uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon were vying for the presidency way back in 1960. Uh, and they, the, the debate they had, uh, the people that listened to it on radio thought Nixon won the debate handily. The people that watched it on TV thought Kennedy won. So presentation mm -hmm. does really matter, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very important. And I think in a race that's this tight and... And party leaders are sort of trying to, to position themselves as the party that can sort of bring Canadians forward. And, and Trudeau's been in government for a while, so there's that sort of opportunity to sort of position as the next choice. And, and again, with the race being so close, I think that it'll be it'll be really come down to those details and, and who people trust, who they think should be the leader, who they want to be the leader, who looks like a good leader. All of that kind of stuff is, is really in those little details. And, of course, the other side of that coin is, you know, you talk about how well they're going to perform. Uh, one flaw, one trip, uh, one step backwards, or, and, and one fatal flaw. It could be fatal in situations like that, I guess, because as you mentioned, uh, and I think your dad approves this, people are starting to pay attention. It's after Labor Day now. The kids are back in school, but, and they're, they're kind of focused. They go, oh, yeah, the selection. Okay, what's going on here? Uh, and, and they'll be watching for things like that. Yeah, I think kind of a great example of that is you've been asking a question about which party do you think will win the next election, not necessarily who you're yeah. going to vote for. And the Liberals have sort of seen a little bit of a, a decline week over week since sort of mid-August, while the Conservatives have sort of seen an increase. And I think that really goes back to that sort of visual, where the Conservatives seem to have really caught kind of a stride and are really focused on their messaging and, and clear on that, while the Liberals and Trudeau have sort of been tripped up in, in current events, things like Afghanistan, but then also these protests, and they haven't necessarily been able to sort of keep that same stride in messaging. And so I think um, that's sort of a, a big picture example of what could happen in the debate. But I think um, that this is a question that I'm going to be kind of watching and just seeing how the debate will affect that as well. We're going to be all be watching it over the next couple of days and just see. And I, I agree with you, Oksana. I think this is the time uh, after these debates and, and maybe, you know, the, some of the data that you're going to accumulate over the weekend and early next week, uh, we may start to see somebody pull away from the pack. Uh, well, time will tell, though. Always a pleasure mm -hmm. to have you on here and great to get your analysis on this, Oksana. Thanks so much for the time today. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me again. Have a great day. You too. Oksana Kischuk, who is a consultant with Abacus Data, who have their finger on the pulse of Canadian voters. And uh, we'll see what happens over the next two nights with those debates. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus a little bit on uh, back to school and the concerns about uh, COVID, especially with the Delta variant that's going on these days. And uh, we've been talking for months and months about this because we're concerned about the psychological impact of not going to school. Yesterday, uh, you may remember on the program, Education Minister Stephen Lecce joined us and, uh, and talked about some of the precautions that uh, his ministry has undertaken to try to make sure that it's a safe environment for school. Notwithstanding all the work that's being done in that, uh, there is still some concern about the impact it's going to have on kids especially. And uh, one of those problems, of course, is is going to do with anxiety. Now, we've also talked with a number of experts on the program about the positives of this, and you have to weigh one against the other to be sure. Uh, I know the head of infectious disease at McMaster Children's Hospital, uh, Dr. Jeff Pernica, has been a guest on our program many times, and he says, look, it's not just about learning, um, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, as they say, but it's all about the social and emotional development of the child. So if you talk to my colleagues in adolescent medicine and mental health, they will tell you, that the explosion of eating disorders, mood disorders, uh, anxiety uh, that has that has sort of reared its ugly head during the COVID nineteen pandemic is is really like nothing they've ever seen before. So you weigh that against uh, well, what has usually been a very stressful day, that being the first day of school. So what should we as parents and, and caregivers be looking for? So please welcome to the program Dr. Audrey Ann Deneau, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary. She's one of the co-authors of a, a fascinating uh, and insightful piece that uh, that appears in uh, theconversation.com uh, about this very subject. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. I think, Doctor, we all have that picture in our minds of that first day at school with our little ones uh, and, you know, the, the anxiety and the tears, probably more from the parents than from the child in a lot of cases, uh, because, you know, it's it's a, a new beginning for the child. It's, you know, it's a, a rite of passage, I guess, in some states. Uh, and we look at that from the adult standpoint an awful lot of the time and, and understand, the, you know, the, the emotions that are going on. Do we pay enough attention to the emotions that the child is feeling and the child is experiencing? I think it depends on everyone, to be honest. I think some people are really attuned to this and some other people might need to pay a bit more attention to how their kids are feeling when they go back to school. For us as adults, it might not seem like much sometimes, like, you know, first day of first grade, for instance, you're like, oh, you've been to school last year. But for a child, that might be a big step. They might have a new classroom. They might be worried about their new teacher and if the new teacher is going to be nice to them. So it might be really anxiety inducing to have those first days back at school, especially in the time of COVID. Well, let's talk about that because there's the wild card, right? I mean, you know, stressful enough to have a first day of school. Uh, for some of them, uh, they've gone through a, a, a very, very stressful and, and intimidating experience uh, through COVID. I mean, the concern about what's going to be going on in the classroom, uh, they've probably spent a lot more time at home, maybe even trying to do some remote learning. Uh, is, is this a relief or does this add to the stress of the child when they go back into the, the physical classroom? I think for many children, this is adding a lot to it. And I think... Quite a few of us can actually relate to children's experiences with this. We, A lot of us have been working from home, and I don't know about you, but it's happened to me where I went back to a larger group setting, and I was like, oh, do I still remember how to do this? And we have to kind of remember how to socialize a bit. And for these kids that have spent sometimes like the last year, year and a half learning from home, it can be quite stressful to go back to their friends, their peers, 
and just kind of getting back to it. They might feel a bit rusty with social interactions. Well, and by the way, to your point, no, I'm still working from home, so I'm still looking forward to going through that experience whenever that might happen. But it's from the child's standpoint, though, you're, you're right. I mean, no matter what, even in a normal school year, uh, it's it's a new teacher. It's maybe new classmates, uh, maybe some classmates you haven't seen since uh, the end of June uh, the year before, and, and it's it's it can be a little bit intimidating. Uh, and I know some parents, I, doctor, are going to listen to this conversation and say, look, you know, kids just suck it up it's new you'll get over it it's going to be great you're going to have a great time uh you know don't let this get you down but you know we don't necessarily as parents sometimes uh pay close enough attention to the way that some children internalize those emotions definitely and we've seen that in research as well we've seen that normally about one in ten children will suffer from anxiety or anxiety symptoms Whereas during COVID, it's gone up to one in five. So we're talking about 20% of children right now that are suffering some symptoms of anxiety. Like that's huge. And it's really something we need to pay attention to because if we can act early and help our children through this and back to school is one such example, we can help that this doesn't get any worse really or that the anxiety doesn't keep growing and have a bigger impact on children's lives. It's, it's fear of the unknown, and, and we have that as, as adults. I mean, it, it just follows form, wouldn't it, that we have to anticipate that, that kids are going to have that, maybe even more so, because they don't have the life experience many of us do. Exactly. And uh, we've also learned through the years as adults strategies to kind of self-regulate or even talk to ourselves uh, when it gets a bit difficult. But children need parents to do their scaffolding to help them go through this and that's one of the strategies we mentioned in our conversation article, just trying to teach the child how to do positive self-talk, being like, okay, I can do this. And so that the children, when they're in situations of stress and anxiety, they're able to go back to these like positive lines to help them and encourage them. That's an interesting aspect of this, uh, to have that conversation with them. And this is, I guess, even before that first day of school, uh, anytime there's going to be a transition like that, to talk about coping mechanisms. Uh, and, and I don't know that a whole lot of parents spend a whole lot of time talking about that with kids. We tend to oftentimes, because we get busy with our lives, I guess, be reactive to children's uh, concerns as opposed to proactive. Definitely. And it's been so hard during COVID because, I mean, parents have so much on their plates. Like, We've all had so much anxiety and stressors, so much more than usual. So it's understandable that parents have their own mental load, their own anxiety to deal with. But it's also important to take some time and think about their child and sit down maybe at the end of the day and just kind of go through how their child is feeling and try to validate their feelings. What are we looking for as, as parents? Uh, how does something like this manifest itself in the child? There's quite a few ways that this might um, show itself. So depending on the child, like everything, but some symptoms you might look at is stomach aches. Like we have a lot of children that will say their tummy's hurting and often that's because they're stressed. Uh, they might have nightmares, racing heartbeat, headaches. And if we're talking more like behavioral manifestations, some might refuse to go to school or to try new activities. They might be scared of going to bed without the parents. So they, they might have like a bunch of different symptoms that show that either they're stressed in general and have anxiety or that they're really scared about separating from the parent and trying those new things by themselves. I guess there's another element to this, too, and I wanted to get your, your perspective on this, too. You, we talked at the beginning of our conversation about the impact that COVID, the pandemic has had. Uh, 
children pay a lot more attention oftentimes, even younger children, uh, to what's going on around them and what's going on on the news. I'm, I mean, you know, when our, our son was younger, I was amazed at how intuitive he was about world events. And, uh, you know, I didn't ever remember him sitting in front of a newscast or anything. But he does. He's, 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 he's absorbing all the information that's out there. You know, and, and he children do that a lot more than we probably give them credit for so they know about the pandemic they know how dangerous this is uh i'm sure that they have some you know knowledge about vaccinations or anti-vaccination debates that are going on that's got a factor into that as well for them to try to make sense of what's going on definitely (laughs) children are so much more receptive and they hear so much more than you think and something that's been found in research this past year is that when children hear more of this like alarming news media or coverage, they actually get more anxiety symptoms and more stressors. So it's important to be mindful about the environment of the child, trying to reduce their access to this type of media, or even us, like if we are ourselves little balls of stress and anxiety, kids are going to pick up on that and they're going to internalize it. So it's important to try to model positive behaviors and to even if we have stressors, be like, oh, I'm nervous about this, but it's going to be okay because X, Y, Z. And that way we're really trying to teach their, our children to cope and just regulate our own anxieties. And maybe have those discussions with them, you know, but how, how do you feel about this? You know, are you concerned about this, whether it's vaccinations or whatever the case might be? Because that's one of the big debates, of course, right now, you know, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be safe in the school environment? And if we're thinking that, you, you got to know that some of the students, some of the kids are, are at least thinking about it and uh, and maybe not understanding. I mean, let's face it, we find with a lot of issues, I guess, uh, Doctor, uh, children are le- rather reticent to open a conversation like this about those subjects. Uh, you know, it's, it's adult t- speaking to adult. Uh, and I think it goes back to what you were saying for We have to be able to read our kids and say, if this is something that's troubling you, let's sit down and have a conversation about it. Exactly. And I can't imagine everything that those children might be thinking because some of them might be scared of catching COVID at school. Like most of the children we're talking under 12 don't have the vaccine. So they might have a lot of concerns about this. I've heard some children being like, oh, I'm scared that I'll give COVID to my grandma, my grandpa. And these are concerns that are important to address. Otherwise, this is really weighing on these children. So taking the time to have those honest discussions where we can validate their feelings and really make them feel heard is really important and during this time we talked just a second ago about being proactive as opposed to reactive to some of these sorts of things and for parents it might say look it's really just natural for kids to feel a little anxious about this it'll go away in a day or two i it probably will with most kids i would think doctor but i mean for those uh who who as we mentioned internalize this and, and it starts to fester and becomes a bit of a problem uh the sooner we address this as, i guess as, as parents and caregivers uh the pops the possibilities of mitigating some of that damage become increased significantly i would think Yeah, definitely. And sometimes I know that not all parents might feel comfortable fully addressing this. I mean, it's a lot to ask people. So there's a lot of resources available as well. Like parents can talk to their family physician or there's Anxiety Canada that has a bunch of great resources and a list of specialists that parents can talk to if they feel like this is really becoming a problem that interferes with their child, like on a daily basis over like a few weeks, for instance. So that way they can really try to address this before it becomes bigger of a problem. And so we're not talking about a massive intervention here, just as a, it's a conversation between parent and child, how to go today, you know, what you, you know, concerned about stuff, you know, is it, was everybody cool with you, that sort of thing. Uh, what, you know, could be just superficial questions, but it's a way to get some information as to how the child's responding, I would think. 
Yeah, definitely. I think parents can play a big, big role in having those discussions and really making the child feel heard. And it doesn't mean, as you were saying, to be the, this massive thing. If parents feel comfortable um, going about it and going a bit deeper, that's amazing. Um, but all parents can really try and have those conversations with the child. And also we need to be mindful not putting them at the spot, maybe like at the dinner table where their siblings are there, maybe the child won't feel super comfortable opening up. But maybe like, you know, when they're alone with the parent before bed or in the morning, if you can have a bit of time alone with that child to have this conversation. This, I would think, is, is a concern, not just, I mean, we've, I think a lot of our focus maybe has been on, uh, as you mentioned, the under 12, the elementary school students. Uh, but this goes all the way up through, I guess, through high school. I mean, anxiety and, and stress levels uh, are, are there with students, no matter what their circumstance, uh, given what they've all had to go through over the last year and a half or so. Definitely. Adolescents are particularly struggling. There's been a lot of research done about their anxiety and depressive symptoms especially adolescence is really this time where friends become your your biggest social group like you want to be with your friends and you want to spend time with them and you want to learn from them and they've been separated from them so that's been really difficult they've felt isolated so most adolescents are really excited about going to school but again some of them might fear anxiety and we have to remember that the school environment isn't optimal for everyone some people struggle a lot at school with whether it's like bullying or stuff like that so they might have a lot of anxiety about going back to school and i'd say even in undergraduate students you might also see this it's a, it's an interesting point because I, I think we're in tune now with the concern about bullying and some of the other aspects of of the school environment and, and, and it's it's not necessarily a, a rampant problem in every institution i don't want to you know leave that impression but it is an ongoing concern and it's something that maybe we have pushed to the back burner because we're so concerned and consumed right now with covid and the impact that's having as we should be uh that we need to also remember that there are other factors that could be contributing to the to the anxiety that the child could be feeling Exactly. There's a lot of factors at school. And for some people, honestly, learning from home might have been a relief for those kids. And I'm not speaking about the majority, of course, but we have to be mindful that children might have a lot of different concerns at school. And even if it's not full on bullying, it could be someone at school who's giving them a bit of trouble or just like new teachers. Like there's a lot of factors that may create anxiety in the child. And it's just that this year is particularly difficult with the added stress of covid of being a bit rusty and interacting with people and also just the safety concerns and the uncertainty of not knowing what school is going to be like in even a month. Doctor, as we wrap this up, uh, for parents who are, are, are listening to this and say, yeah, you know what, maybe that's a conversation I need to have. Uh, maybe uh, you want some support. You want to know exactly how to approach this and the technique to use. I, I would imagine uh, the family doctor is probably the portal to, to get a lot of that information. But as you mentioned, there are other uh, websites and, and uh, sources of information that they could go to. Yes, definitely. Anxiety Canada is a great resource for anything about anxiety. Family physicians are also great and they can kind of point you in uh, the right direction. Or you can always start with your own discussion with your child and remember the key aspects of being validating your child's feelings and making them feel heard. Uh, interesting discussion, and uh, you can go to theconversation.com, by the way, if you want to read the, the full piece uh, that uh, the doctor uh, co-wrote about, uh, about this anyway. Dr. Audrey Andino, uh from uh, University of Calgary, thank you so much for the time, and thank you for the piece that you've written, too. I hope it's going to be uh, very helpful to a lot of parents. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me. I hope it was helpful as well. I do, too. Take care.
that's a interesting conversation to have with parents. And I know it's it's for, actually for some parents, it, it's you know first day of school hasn't started. Some of them aren't going to be going back till tomorrow, uh, but it can be a very stressful time. And we have to, as parents and as caregivers, look for the signs uh, as to how kids are being impacted by that sort of thing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. And as we've talked about with uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, who is the uh, chief medical officer here in Ontario, uh, he's listed as a priority that he have to keep working, keep schools open. As our kids return to the classroom this week, I know there is a likely a mix of emotions, excitement, nervousness, and worry. But please know that we are doing everything we can to build the safest environment possible to help them ensure that our children stay in school for the entire academic year. Uh, well, you know, that's the priority and that's the goal of, of all the school boards right across the province of Ontario, including uh, the two uh, Catholic and public board here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Pat Daly. Pat is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, Catholic District School Board, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Pat, it's been a long time. Thanks for being with us again today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. It's my pleasure. Listen, before we get into your program, your return to school program, which I, I think has got some innovative ideas, uh, we want to deal with another issue, too, that uh, kind of fell across your desk as we anticipated it would. Uh, and that's a couple of, well, one outbreak, and, and one other case, of course, at a couple of your schools, uh, St. James the Apostle Elementary School. Uh, you had, uh, what was it, a couple of different staff members who tested positive? Yes, uh, we did, Bill, late last week. Uh, and uh, public health uh, had notified us uh, and immediately following the notification, you know, we had a deep cleaning conducted at the school and t- took all necessary safety measures uh, following, uh, uh, you know, the information from public health. Now, what's the protocol for the the two people that tested positive here? Are they uh, are they being quarantined now? What what's happening? Do you have any update for us on that? Yeah, public health uh, obviously are the experts, but the, sure. yes, the the, uh, the practice. Clearly, is that individuals that test positive and close contact uh, contacts would uh, self-isolate uh, at home, and uh, there's some variation in that this year, Bill. You know, because of uh, vaccine vaccination status, sure. individuals that are fully vaccinated could return earlier. Those individuals, whether staff, students that are unvaccinated, would uh, like last year remain at home for the two weeks. Well, and I guess the determining factor there would be the symptoms, right? I mean, just how they're doing, and that's that's really a medical decision, I guess, as opposed to a board decision, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I really, beyond the heroic work of our staff, I can't thank uh, Hamilton Public Health enough under the leadership of Dr. Richardson. They have been of invaluable support over the last uh, year and a half, and uh, just done an amazing job. That's one thing that I know we've talked about, and, and we want to reiterate that for our listeners in, in both Hamilton and London, uh, about the key uh, factor here, and that being the, the boards of health, uh, Dr. Mackey in London, of course, and, and Dr. Richardson here in Hamilton. Uh, this conversation that you're having uh, with the public health boards about these things, this is ongoing. This is almost on a daily basis, isn't it, Pat? Yeah, absolutely. Each board uh, has the COVID-19 contacts uh, that meet regularly with the representatives of public health. And you're right, Bill, it can be two, three, four times uh, a week, uh, sometimes more, you know, sometimes twice a day. So, yeah, the contact uh, has been instrumental in assisting us in our own planning. And I guess maybe the, the, the descriptor we should use here is your plan is malleable because you, you can't just say, okay, there it is, it's done, uh, now we can put that aside and just carry on with their lives. Because things change almost, I was going to say, every day. Sometimes they change by the hour, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, 
probably everyone would agree, you know, what we expected in June, uh, you know, is quite different uh, than, you know, what has taken place over the summer and, you know, what we face when schools uh, reopen. So for sure, I think flexibility uh, is uh, is one of the things that, that we have learned uh, over the last year and a half that you just have to be able to respond quickly. And and again, I think through the understanding of parents and, and students and the great work of our staff and, and wonderful partners like public health and uh, the public board, I think, you know, we've been able to do that. Pat, yesterday when we had uh, Education Minister Lecce on the program, he talked about the work that his ministry had done uh, to try to prepare the buildings, the physical buildings uh, for the school year, uh, and that has to do an awful lot with things like ventilation systems, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as uh, you uh, put the first day behind you for many students, uh, are you satisfied uh, with the work that the ministry has done? Are you confident that the, the, the environment is safe and as safe as it possibly could be under the circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. I really uh, want to credit Minister Lecce and the, and the Deputy Minister and, you know, individuals in the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Education. Clearly, they uh, have worked very, very hard under, you know, unprecedented uh, uh, challenges and provided uh, our board and other boards uh, with necessary funding in a whole range of areas, one being the important area that, that you uh, highlight, and that's, you know, the ventilation systems mm-hmm. in our in our schools, which, you know, the the, the more research that has been uh, developed with regard to COVID, the more we understand how important uh, high-quality ventilation is. And uh, just as an example, in our own board, we have installed, uh, you know, 1,100 HEPA filters in our classrooms and, and other parts of school buildings. We've uh, upgraded every single uh, mechanical filter to MRF 13, the highest grade, and, and completed numerous uh, uh, HVAC uh, projects uh, in our system over the summer, all, you know, w- with a goal of improving ventilation. So that's one area, Bill, I would, uh, you know, want to assure parents that uh, there's been improvements made over last year would be HVAC, and another area would be with regard to the vaccination disclosure policy and the fact mm-hmm. that parents can be assured that that staff and trustees, volunteers, whoever, are either fully vaccinated or will receive rapid antigen testing. So in addition to everything that they saw last year, there's some other significant measures that have been implemented. Well, let's talk about that, because that's a very important part of the program here, uh, and especially when it comes to assuaging some of the concerns that parents and some students might have about this, Pat, uh, because the debate's going on in many private sector enterprises right now, but, you know, mandatory vaccination, should we do this, should we ensure this, should we even disclose whether or not we've been vaccinated? Uh, your board has been pretty proactive about this, and I know the, the the public board, we've talked with Don Danko at the public board about this too, and you, you're pretty much on the same page here about disclosure and making people aware of, of, of who has been vaccinated to try to allay some of those concerns yeah absolutely uh, clearly you know the government introduced it uh, you know in later august august i would just add that like our provincial the ontario catholic school trustees association has supported mandatory vaccination for staff and adding covid19 to the uh, the immunization uh, list so that uh, you know that parents staff students everyone can be assured uh, you know, with regard to vaccination status. But, yes, in terms of the policy as it stands, we, our staff, are working very, very hard to implement it. Uh, you know, the disclosure, the attestations went out late last week, and I know the vast majority of staff 
have already responded. In addition to the requirement around staff, we as well, uh, the board unanimously passed the motion that those student-athletes that are involved in high-contact sports, that they as well would fall under the disclosure policy. So, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to mitigate risk. And that's an important part of this because I know one of the things a lot of parents were concerned about was was the resumption of extracurricular activities uh, that uh, so many students were looking forward to, and and that's going to be happening, but under different circumstances. Uh, and the uh, the vaccination, uh, I guess, revelations uh, and disclosure is going to be a key part of that. But also the the testing, the rapid testing of 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 those who who may not be complying with this for or have not been vaccinated for one reason or another. Yeah, for sure. It's a critical component, and I can't agree with you more. I know from my own experience, my four children, and what I've seen in you know, tens of thousands of students in our system, involvement in co-curricular, whether it's sports, the arts, clubs, student council, whatever, that that's critically important in a child's, a student's experience and obviously contributes to their academic achievement and their mental health and well-being. So, we're very pleased that the the school reopening guidance permits it, and I can tell you our staff are working as hard as they can uh, to provide it as safely as possible. Pat, let's talk a little bit about some of the other aspects of your plan. It's called Rebuild, Restore, Renew Together, uh, and it's it's a it's a, a board wide uh, protocol that's being put in place here. We've talked about uh, the dis- the vaccination disclosure. But I think a lot of people are glad to hear about that. Uh, a lot of the other stuff, of course, is is really to fall in compliance with uh, some of the stuff that uh, the ministry has already talked about, uh, which your board, to your credit, has been pretty proactive about anyway. That includes masking. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, the, the public board in Hamilton uh, has done the same. We have yep. mandated from JK right through to grade 12, uh, you know, as a, an additional uh, measure layer of uh, protection. I would add as well, in addition to the uh, the Ministry of Education guidance, we have uh, uh, directed uh, schools that, you know, assemblies be put on hold. Uh, and as well, uh, staff meetings and any type of uh, uh, of gatherings uh, within our schools. And again, that was in consultation uh, with public health. Uh, so we have went, uh, you know, beyond uh, the provincial requirements in areas where we thought that it made sense to do that. Pat, is there concern uh, among your staff and and especially among your your, your teachers? Uh, about the the rising number of new cases, I mean, you know, I, I, you've done everything that you wanted to do and needed to do uh, to, to create as safe an environment as you possibly could here. Uh, but the numbers are the numbers, and and we've saw over the last well eighteen months now a couple of different times where the numbers got to the point where the ministry had to step in and say, okay, it's time for people to go home again. Nobody wants to see that happen. Uh, but it's still a possibility, if not a probability. Uh, how do you prepare for something like that? Or do you just keep on doing what you're doing here and hope for the best? Yeah, I, I, that's a, a great question. And I think, you know, a great deal has been learned, you know, since March of uh, uh, 2020. And we're much better prepared in terms of the professional development of staff, the technology that we have provided you know, in the thousands and thousands of devices to to staff uh, and students in terms of communicating, you know, with staff, parents, uh, and students. So for sure, we're we're much better prepared in terms of the quality of learning that uh, the students uh, 
receive, you know, when they're at home. Our real hope and prayer is that uh, there will not be, uh, you know, system-wide or, or provincial closures. The minister uh, has, you know, indicated that they will be, if that's necessary, looking at a, a regional approach, which is one that we fully support. We think that makes complete sense. Could there be an individual uh Likely there will be in individual classes. Could there be in individual schools? Possibly. But again, uh, you know, others have said this, but, uh, you know, I am of the absolute belief that schools should be the first to open and the last to close. And, uh, you know, our staff are, and Board of Trustees are doing everything we can to support that. Well, we've shared uh, the comments from the chief medical officer. Uh, Of course, he's been on our program a number of times now talking about this, and and we already know the education minister is on on the same page with that as well. So we like to think that that all the precautions are going to be taken in situations like this, and and there are cases, and as as the case uh, with you know the the outbreak that you talked about at St James the Apostle School uh two people and 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 hopefully there's there's not a major impact in what's going to be having there so uh you know it's this possibility that you're going to see cases that's all there is to it it's a matter of of how we respond to those i guess that's going to be important on this uh is there a, a level of confidence though with your staff pat that 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 this is as uh, you know a safe environment and that we can carry on here and and it's not going to be it the way it was before certainly but is there a comfort level here that yeah we can do this and everything's going to be okay yeah i think you know bill i'm convinced you know having been involved in the system for more than a few years and i've witnessed uh, as has my fellow trustees the dedication and absolute commitment of our staff uh, for the good of, uh, of our students, their students. So, yeah, I, I know that they have been and will continue to do all they can for the well-being of our students. Clearly, you know, are, are they concerned? Uh, I'm sure, like, you know, like, like parents are and like all of us are, uh, you know, until we're, whenever the time comes where we're out of COVID. But, but again, uh, I just uh, am inspired by their dedication. Uh, you talked about the extracurricular activities, and that's a key part, and you've already got a protocol in place like that. Uh, what about remote learning? I know that was a concern last year, Pat, because it was, let's face it, new to well, a lot of teachers as well as students. Uh, I would imagine the overwhelming majority of your student bodies uh, across the, the board are, are, are back in the classroom. Uh, are the numbers up or down, or is there a concern about the number of students and families who may have opted for remote learning? Yeah, the uh, the numbers are significantly lower. Uh, last year, I think you know there were times throughout the school year where we were approaching 18 to 20 percent of students uh, uh, learning fully remotely at home. Uh, I think the most up-to-date numbers that I've seen, at, at least for the beginning of this school year, uh, are under five percent, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps four uh, percent. So for sure, the numbers are much lower, and I think that's indicative of. Uh, you know, parents' belief, like uh, most of us, that uh, uh, their children are, are better off in school. Saying that for, you know, uh, whatever personal reasons, uh, you know, some parents uh, have decided, whether it's health reasons or others, decided to keep their children home. But in terms of the quality of learning for those children at home, for sure, since March 2020, it's uh, far superior. I would imagine part of that comfort level though is the fact that we well as you mentioned we've learned a lot more i mean this was all new to everybody last year wasn't it pat and we had to develop protocols and then i guess you know i, I think 
a lot of parents were justified in being a little nervous and reticent about sending the kids in because they weren't sure because let's face it none of us were sure about how to deal with this i mean in the initial stages you know we we thought you know if you you know we have, let's wipe everything down because you know the, the, this could be on the desk it could be on a pencil it could be on everything else now we understand a lot more about the the the, the virus itself uh which i guess has made it a lot easier to take precautions about it Hundred percent, and you know, and at least for me, uh, particularly when it comes to you know my children, obviously, uh, which are so very, very important to, to my wife and I. You know, any unknown uh, creates concern, anxiety, and as you say, you know, throughout the last part of the 2019-20 school year and throughout all of last year, there were many, many unknowns. So, you know, I completely understand why. Uh, students, parents, you know, would uh, feel uh, some unease. I think for me, Bill, one of the huge differences in this school year is the level of vaccination. Uh, you know, we once we collect the data around the uh, vaccination disclosure, we'll know for sure. So I don't want to, you know, guess a number, but uh, uh, I'm confident that the vast, vast majority of our staff have been uh, fully vaccinated and uh, hopefully the number of, you know, students uh, grade 7 and beyond, that the numbers there are, are high. So that is a significant uh, positive that we didn't have last year. Uh, look forward to those numbers. And uh, by the way, we should mention, I talked about some of the uh, the concerns about some of the schools and some of the positive cases. Uh, Hamilton, the public board, is is, uh, is going through some of those as well. So it, it's there. It's a factor. And it's just a matter of uh, taking the necessary precautions. Uh, Pat, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, continued good luck to you and staff and the board members uh, in getting through this thing. And uh, hopefully there's a light at the end of this tunnel and we're going to get there sooner than later. But thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always great to speak with you. Take care. You too. Pat Daly, the chair of the board of the Hamilton Catholic Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.